Okay, so here what we're going to do in this chapter is to review some of the concepts from um, previous chapter, but in a different, uh, with a different approach, more to how the blood moves from the heart to the blood vessels and uh, uh, definitions like blood pressure, how the uh, blood reaches every single part of our body and what percentages. And we need to get some definitions like the ones we have here, the cardiac output, stroke volume. There's a formula here that states the cardiac output equals stroke volume times the heart rate. And this formula has the following explanation. We define these terms, cardiac output is the volume of blood, the amount of blood that is pumped by the ventricles every minute. We count the blood that is pumped from the ventricle every single minute. That's what the cardiac output is. That's what we say here, milliliters per minute. The amount of blood in a minute. Stroke volume. Stroke volume is a definition of the amount of blood pumped by the ventricle every time it contracts. So it's volume, milliliters per beat every time the ventricle contracts. And the heart rate, to complete the formula, is the number of the times that these ventricles contract in a minute. If we resolve this, we will have the cardiac output value in milliliters per minute. Another way that we can see this is the cardiac output depends on two things, the stroke volume and heart rate. What is the importance of the cardiac output? The cardiac output, the importance is that it's going to tell us how much blood the tissues and cells are getting. If the cardiac output is lower than it should be, then it means that the cells of our body and not receiving enough amount of blood, therefore not amount, and not amount, not enough amount of oxygen. That's the importance of the cardiac output. And the cardiac output depends on two things, as we see here, the stroke volume and the heart rate. Now, in some practical examples, let's say we are at rest, just reading or sitting, but then you start exercising. Your muscles will need more oxygen, meaning you need more blood. The muscles need more blood. The heart has to send more blood, has to send more cardiac output, has to be increased. How we do that? Increasing the heart rate. If I increase the heart rate, I will increase the cardiac output, increasing the amount of blood that is being sent to the muscles. And that's what happens when we start exercising. We increase our cardiac output. And the other way that we can change the cardiac output is to send more blood every time the ventricle contracts, increase the amount of blood that the ventricle is sending. That is achieved by a different mechanism. We exercise, the heart rate increases, but also the sympathetic nervous system sends signals to the heart muscle to contract stronger. And if it contracts stronger, it will send more blood. It will send more blood to, uh, to the muscles in our example. 
So in terms of numbers, the average heart rate is 70 beats per minute, average. Average stroke volume goes from 70 to 80 milliliters per beat. And then we plug these values into the formula. Then we have the average cardiac output, which is 5,500 milliliters per minute. So every minute, our heart sends five liters of blood. And the amount of blood that we have in our body, five liters. So we can say that every minute, our heart pumps the blood that we have in our body. Every minute, the blood that we have is circulating. A complete cycle. That is an average values. That's what most people have. Now, the cardiac output may be affected by different things. We'll see later what are the things that affect the cardiac output. Now, some words about the cardiac rate, the heart rate, how the heart can change the rate, how the cells can contract faster. And that is, thanks to these HCN channels, HCN channels, I think we mentioned this before in the previous chapter, uh, these channels are represented here these curves by these red lines. These are spontaneous depolarization channels, calcium channels, and sodium channels that open when the cells are hyperpolarized. Well, the sympathetic nervous system, the sympathetic nervous system will affect these channels and will make them open, increasing the heart rate. How? You see here that these channels are depolarizing in this, in this angle, with this slope. But if this is changed, if this is changed, then the actual potential will get much faster. And that's how the sympathetic uh, nervous system changes the heart rate of the myocardial cells, affecting these channels and make the, making them fire an action potential faster, increasing the number of times that they contract every minute. And the other way around, the parasympathetic acetylcholine slows the heart rate because opens potassium channel and makes this curve change from being like this, get like this other inclination. And so the actual potential will happen at a much slower rate. I'm sorry, I'm sorry the ringo here, but what's, what's, what's SA? Sinoatrial. Sinoatrial node. Okay, and then what's HCN? HCN stands for hyperpolarization channels. Thank you. Negative chronotropic, 
increases our heart rate. You know, the terms chronos come from time. And we see positive chronotropic, meaning increasing the rate. Negative chronotropic, decreasing the rate. Autonomic nervous system has all these effects, and we mentioned this also in the nervous system. Sympathetic and parasympathetic, this is how they affect the sinuator node, AV node, and the muscle of the atria and ventricles. And the sinuator node, AV node, sympathetic increase of rate of depolarization, as well as in the AV node and the atrial muscle increase the strength of contraction contract stronger and pump the more blood. And the person with a nervous system has the opposite effects. So that was related to the heart rate. The heart rate in terms of how we can affect the cardiac output. The other factor is the stroke volume, which is the amount of blood that the ventricles pumps every beat, every time it contracts. The stroke volume is determined by three factors that are listed here. The EDV, which stands for end diastolic volume, the total peripheral resistance, and third, the contractility. It's going to describe everyone. End diastolic volume is the volume of blood that the ventricle has at the end of the diastole. So imagine the ventricle relaxing at the end of the diastole. Blood is flowing from the atrium. So the ventricle is full of blood at the end of the diastole when the heart is completely relaxed. This is also called preload. Preload. It is represented in this picture here. Preload as this amount of blood that is flowing from the atrium to the ventricle. Preload. How this affects the stroke volume? Because if we have more EDV, there will be more stroke volume. That is uh, very simple. If I have more blood filling the ventricle, or I will pump more blood. If I have less blood filling the ventricle, less blood will be pumped. So the stroke volume depends on the end diastolic volume. In the example of exercise, when we exercise, we start increasing the amount of cardiac output, the muscle is using more blood, more oxygen, and therefore the blood is returning in more amounts to the heart increases the end diastolic volume, increases the stroke volume. The second factor, total peripheral resistance. The peripheral resistance is a resistance that is found when the blood starts flowing out of the ventricles to the arteries. The arteries, they have walls, there's a space, and when the blood is pumped, it finds some resistance against, uh, with uh, the blood has to fight against that resistance to flow in the artery. It is inversely related to the stroke volume. How? Because if there is more resistance in the arteries, so less blood will be pumped from the ventricle. This is called afterload. 
after loading the trigger setting here as a resistance you see the blood flow in you see a valve here narrowing the artery representing the resistance but the blood fine when it's pumped out of the vein and the third factor is the contractility strength of ventricular contraction if the heart if the muscle contracts stronger more blood will be sent every beat. Another consideration here at the end that from all this volume at the end of the diastole that is in the ventricle, approximately 60% of that volume is sent, is pumped. That's called the ejection fraction. Because not all blood from the ventricle is pumped. There's always some blood staying in the ventricle after the ventricle contracts. The frank Starling law has to do with these factors in terms of uh, more volume, meaning the stroke volume will be increased. The end diastolic volume increase will determine an increased stroke volume. And that's what we see here. X axis, the end diastolic volume, and Y, the stroke volume. If this end diastolic volume starts increasing, then the stroke volume will increase. What I said, more blood getting into the ventricles, more blood will be pumped. Now, if I increase the contractility by sympathetic nervous stimulation, I will change this curve from here to here to here, meaning more stroke volume, even more will be sent out to the blood or to the circulation. So the stroke volume, I mean, the Frank Starling law just states what it says there. Increased EDV results in increased contractility and therefore increased stroke volume. That's what the Frank Starling law says. Now, how the EDV determines an increased contraction strength, it has to do with the degree of stretching that the myocardium, the cells have. This is the same thing that we study in the skeletal muscles, where we say that there is an optimal distance at which the myofilaments have to be so they can contract more effectively. There's an optimal, there's an optimal um, place where they have to be not supposed to be overlapped like this, or not too much stretch like this. An optimal place where the actin and myosin would interact better and uh, make the tension be greater, which in terms of this part means increased contraction strength. The optimal will be B and C. And D will be forcing this in increased EDB. The average normal, what happens all the time, is between B and C. But when we force this, like exercise and increasing the EDB, then they will separate more and provide more but then if we stretch this even more, then this will start decreasing again. 
compression strength will decrease. Because it's like the rubber band. You stretch it more, and it will snap stronger. But if you stretch it too much, they will become completely uh, loose and will not have any uh, strength. So how would you describe A then? What's that? How would you describe A then? A, when there is excessive relaxation oh. and you see overlapping of the actin and myosin. The Frank-Sanoid law explains all these relationships or adjustments that happens when there is an excessive peripheral resistance, that will decrease the stroke volume. But that makes more blood remaining in the ventricle. So the end-diastolic volume will increase and the ventricles will be stretched more. And if they stretch more, they will contract stronger. But there is a limit. We see this in um, high blood pressure. People that have high blood pressure for a long time, like say 20, 30 years, with high blood pressure. This means that the arteries, they are opposing a lot of resistance. The peripheral resistance is increased. So the heart has to work harder. But when the heart works harder and finds a lot of resistance, increased peripheral resistance, that will decrease the stroke volume. That means the blood will stay in the heart for longer. Increase the end diastolic volume. The heart starts contracting stronger. It's making a lot of effort. If we don't correct the situation, then that heart will be contracting very hard and strong and fight against the resistance for 20 years. More, more EDV will stretch the ventricles more and more and more, and after 20, 30 years, those ventricles will be overstretched and will not be able to contract effectively. That's what we see, what we see in people with high blood pressure for 30 years without treatment. They end up having congestive heart failure, and the heart fails because of the high blood pressure for a long time without treatment. That is explained with Frank Starling Long. The ventricles are overstretched. Yeah, they stretch and they increase the effectiveness, efficiency of contraction, but only for a while. If it gets overstretched, then they will not contract at all. Contractility is controlled extrinsically, meaning sympathetic and parasympathetic. Autonomic nervous system, as we mentioned uh, before, uh, increase the contractility sympathetic by making more calcium available. And the parasympathetic makes a negative chronotropic effect, decrease the heart rate, and uh, increases the stroke volume by, or as a consequence, but it's not enough to compensate lower rate. So that means that the cardiac output will be decreased. That's the net effect. So parasympathetic is more effective decreasing the heart rate to decrease the cardiac output. Sympathetic increases the heart rate and contractility. So question. So when, so when doctors prescribe high blood pressure medications like 
sinopril and also this is to to help the heart contract less and avoid expanding the arteries to the point that they're no longer flexible and hold the what's it called the uh, strokes of the of the volume the stroke volume it depends. It depends of uh, the type of medication that we give against uh, high blood pressure. Because, for instance, this medication called isinopril, it, it, that works at the level of the aldosterone, angiotensin, aldosterone system. Uh, there are other medications that work at the level of the uh, vasodilation. Say, if the increased resistance is described in high blood pressure, and if I dilate the blood vessels, I'm decreasing the resistance. So making for the heart easy to pump the blood through the blood vessels. And that's one of the type of medications against high blood pressure, to vasodilators. And that will lower your blood pressure, lower your resistance, and your heart works better. The other uh, medications that are used against blood pressure are diuretics, meaning that make you eliminate fluid and therefore decrease the volume a little bit and decrease the resistance. So most of these medications are directed to decrease the resistance, to decrease the blood pressure, because that's the thing that will damage the heart. Lisinopril will work at the level of aldosterone, and aldosterone is the one that controls the sodium potassium level of the kidney and therefore decrease the volume and decrease the resistance. So if you think about this, all these medications against the high blood pressure, congestive heart failure, all of them are based on these concepts. Cardiac output, stroke volume, heart rate, and peripheral resistance. But how would a doctor know which is which of which medication you through a blood test? It, it depends on different factors. There's a standard protocol that starts with diuretics and vasodilators and lisinopril or other related, but it has to be adjusted according to each type of patient. Like if someone comes with just high blood pressure, depending on the age also, if someone comes with high blood pressure and diabetes, or if someone has high blood pressure and it's 75 years old, things are completely different in every case. But there's a standard protocol that follows the physiology, yeah, but it has to be adjusted according to each type of patient. So again, this is the same formula, and this is the basics of heart physiology. Cardiac output equals cardiac rate or heart rate times the stroke. And now we've added here some other factors for each of these individual factors, like heart rate. The heart rate is affected by sympathetic parasympathetic. Stroke volume is affected by peripheral resistance. It can be increased by contraction strength or increasing the end diastolic. This is related to the Frank Starling law. And we see that sympathetic system may affect both heart rate, but also increase the contraction strength and therefore increasing the stroke. So this is a central equation for explaining all the we call hemodynamics of flow of blood in the heart and the effect of the pump and the blood vessels in terms of peripheral resistance.
Now, the end diastolic volume is the blood that gets to the ventricle, but it is coming from the atria. And the atria is collecting blood from the veins. Superior vena cava, inferior vena cava, they arrive to the right atrium. And superior vena cava and inferior vena cava are collecting the venous blood from the whole body. That's called venous return. So it means that if you have more blood coming from your veins, your end diastolic volume will be increased. Now the veins, we've said, they have thin walls. They can be stretched a lot. They can hold more blood because of that. We call that veins have high compliance. They can get a lot of blood and be the store, the storage of blood. Two-thirds of the total blood is in the veins. Two-thirds of the total volume of blood, which is five liters, will be like three, uh, three liters approximately. And they hold more blood than arteries, but they keep it at a lower pressure because the walls are thinner than the arteries. That's how we see the distribution of blood in the different organs and blood vessels at rest. And you can see that in the venous side, we have 60-70%, what we call systemic veins, small veins and large veins. Comparing with the arteries and lungs, heart, the percentages show that the blood is located more in the venous side in the veins. Now, talking about more about pressure, pressure, again, is the force that the blood exerts in the walls of the blood vessels. If the arteries are thicker, there will be more pressure in the arteries. The veins are thinner, there will be less pressure. There's a difference actually between the arteries and veins of about 10 millimeters of mercury. And when the blood from the veins reach the atria, the blood in the veins have still pressure, but when it gets to the atrium, it's considered to be zero. Because that's the place where all the blood is getting, uh, is being collected. Now, this venous return, blood that returns to the heart, can be affected or changed by different factors like sympathetic nervous system. May stimulate smooth muscle contraction of the veins and actually send more blood to the atrium. Muscle pumps, skeletal muscle pumps. Pressure difference between abdomen and thoracic. This is what I was saying when breathing mechanism or breathe in, the pressure inside the thorax is decreased and that's actually pulling blood towards the thorax. In blood volume, meaning if you have more volume in the venous side, more will be returned to the heart. That is shown in this diagram. 
Venus return relation with the endoscopic volume. The Venus return depends on the amount of blood that we have. It depends on the negative intrathoracic pressure, the breathing effect. And the venous pressure, which is the pressure of the blood inside the veins, which can be affected by sympathetic nervous system, vasoconstriction will increase this pressure and will increase the venous return, or the action of the skeletal muscle components. And here the blood volume can be affected by the urine volume, tissue fluid volume, and all this will affect the endiastolic volume. And the endiastolic volume determines the stroke volume, which is how much blood goes to the, to the different organs. So let's see the blood volume and what are the factors that affect this blood volume. Speak about blo uh, blood volume, we have to check and see the amount of water that we have in our blood, in the body, and the different compartments compartments that we have. Meaning by compartments, where this fluid and water is located. There are two big ones. The intracellular compartment and the extracellular compartment. The name describes it, inside the cells and outside the cells. Now, extracellular has even two subcompartments. One of them is the blood volume, which is inside the blood vessels and the interstitial fluid, that fluid in between the blood vessel and the cells, that fluid that is baking all the cells of the body. And you see the amounts, relative amounts, in terms of liters. The water from these compartments is moving inside the cell to the interstitial fluid, back and forth, from the blood plasma, back and forth, and all these numbers must be maintained all the time. If for some reason I increase the intake of water, I will increase the amount of water here inside the blood. But then it will correct because it will move to the interstitial fluid, it will move to inside the cell. And the other way around, if I'm dehydrated or I'm losing too much water, then everything will be balanced off to maintain this here below is the gastrointestinal tract. That's when I drink water, it also gets to the interstitial fluid and distributed in different, in different compartments in that way. So the blood plasma volume depends on the amount of water that I have, my intake, my excretion by the kidneys, elimination by the lungs, sweating on the level of the skin, These are some numbers, like two-thirds of the body water is intracellular. And of the remaining 80% is in the interstitial fluid, this is interstitial space, 20% in the blood plasma. Now how the water moves in between these compartments? Osmosis. Urine, excretion, water intake are factors that may affect the blood volume. And all the time, these numbers are changing, balancing the amount of, uh, of the water in, inside every compartment.
Now, how the water moves in and out is following some forces, which are called startling forces, which is a combination of different pressures. Some of them are hydrostatic pressure, which is just the pressure of the fluid, meaning blood pressure. And oncotic pressure. Oncotic pressure is the pressure exerted by the plasma protein. And this can be expressed in this formula here. Which you see there are two hydrostatic pressures and there are two osmotic, colloidosmotic pressures from the capillary blood vessel and the interstitial fluid. So these pressures will be balanced and determine if fluid comes out of the blood vessel or returns to the blood vessel. Which is explained here in this graph much better. We start from here, from the arterial, and the blood goes to the capillary blood vessel. This is the point at which the nutrients, gases, fluids will uh, reach the cells. You see some arrows here, noting that there will be filtration, meaning fluid is coming out this capillary blood vessel towards the cells, which amplified inversion is seen here to the capillary blood vessel. And who determines that the fluid will come out? That will be determined by these two pressures. One of them is the PC, which is the hydrostatic pressure on the capillary. This is the blood pressure inside the blood, the blood vessel. And what is the pressure for the arrow that goes in opposite direction. That is the colloidosmotic pressure, colloidosmotic pressure in the blood vessel. So the plasma proteins here are pulling water. But the blood pressure is higher than that, so that will determine the fluid coming out. That happens in the arterial end. In the venous end of the capillary, things different, because at this point, the blood pressure has it's not so strong now. But the plasma proteins will be higher now with pull more water in this side. On this side, there will be reabsorption that we showed here, net reabsorption. So the fluid will come out of the capillary blood vessel, the cells will take all the nutrients, and then the fluid will return to the venous side and go back to the heart. That's how these startling forces uh, work combination of hydrostatic pressure and colloidosmotic pressure. And that determines the blood volume. That determines the blood volume because if there is some change of these pressures, like if I increase blood pressure here inside the blood vessel, more blood will come out here. More fluid will come out here, will not return effectively. Or if I obstruct here, put an obstruction here, the forces will be completely different. And one of the things that we see is the next slide. Because of alteration of this balance is edema, which is defined as excessive accumulation of water in the interstitial space, so excessive amount of interstitial fluid, which may happen be 
because some of these cases may be because of high blood pressure. People with high blood pressure, they usually have swelling of the lower limbs, especially around the ankles. Why? Because there's an increased blood pressure. And go back to this graph. If I increase this arrow, which stands for the blood pressure, more fluid will come up and will not return effectively. It will remain in the interstitial fluid. And that explains the edema that people with high blood pressure have swelling around the ankles. Venous obstruction. If I obstruct the end of the capillary, the venous side, then not much uh, fluid will return. And it will remain in the interstitial fluid. If plasma proteins leak to the interstitial space, they will bring water with it. There will be more water in the interstitial space. Decreased plasma concentration. Not enough pressure to bring the water back to the blood vessel. Or obstruction of lymphatic drainage. Lymphatic system is important to pick up the excess of fluid. And if there is an obstruction of lymphatic system, then we'll see increased amount of interstitial fluid. And this picture is showing one of those cases of obstruction of lymphatic drainage. All that is water, it's fluid in the interstitial space. You cannot get that water out from that. You cannot grab a syringe, a needle, and aspirate all the water. It's not possible. Because the water is in between the cells, in the interstitial space of every single cell. Yeah. You cannot get the water out from there. That happens sometimes. There are problems or diseases uh, where the lymph nodes of the inguinal region have to be removed for different reasons. Maybe cancer, maybe infections. When, like in this case, you see a scar here. This person has the lymph nodes of the inguinal region removed, and the lymphatic system is obstructed here. So all the fluid that is being picked up from the capillaries by the lymphatic vessels cannot go beyond this point. So fluid will remain in the interstitial space. Now, as I said, you cannot grab a needle and remove that. There's no way. Because the fluid is not accumulated in one place. All the fluid is in between the cells. All the, you cannot remove that. I mean, there are other treatments for this. It would probably not return to the state of the other leg, but it would improve uh, importantly with some treatments. Uh, that is not common, but it may happen sometimes. And uh, that's how we explain the the edema. Some of the treatments is massage. Some of the treatments is compression because that will change the pressure of blood also in the lower limb. And so in terms of the time, that part of the body will get readjusted. But it usually has to be with compression bandages all the time, trying to push the water back or not, or stop the accumulation of more fluid there. That problem happens also with people that had breast uh, cancer and, and surgery that removes all the lymph nodes from the axillary region. They will have edema of the upper lip, yeah. chronic edema, it cannot uh, be resolved completely. If those lymph nodes are removed from the axillary, mm -hmm. they won't be able to detect the cancer cells? If they don't remove the lymph nodes from this? If, if they 
Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, the, in some cases um, of surgeries for breast cancer, they have to remove lymph nodes to see if cells, cancer cells, are invading those lymph nodes to assess if the cancer is moving from the place and getting to other parts of the body. Those lymph nodes actually are good because they're clean. They're filters. All the cancers are supposed to be trapped there and not go beyond that point. But if we find cells, cancer cells in the lymph nodes, then you cannot guarantee that cells have gone beyond that place. And after that, they have to be in a patient has to be well in screening, follow up, trying to detect in other parts of the body, lungs, brain. Um, and the treatment is completely different. You usually get radiotherapy or chemotherapy afterwards. Now the blood volume is also regulated by the kidneys and by the formation of urine, filtration in the places of the kidney called glomeruli. The glomeruli are filters. They are filters in the kidney. 180 liters is moved in a day. It's filtrated by the kidneys in one day. But not all of it is eliminated, we just make 1.5, 1 liter of urine every day, meaning that the rest, the difference is completely reabsorbed into the blood. So if we have an excess of fluid, then we easily, the kidneys will remove that. And if we have a deficit of fluid, the kidneys will also keep more fluid to regulate the amount of blood volume, which is the determinant here. Who controls that? Well, hormones, aldosterones, autonomic nervous system, sympathetic nervous system. Sympathetic nervous system helps to increase the blood volume in the atria, it stimulates stretch receptors that make the heart contract more and stimulate the kidneys to contain more water. Kidney arterioles dilate, increase the blood flow, increase urine production, and that will decrease the blood volume if needed. So autonomic nervous system works the level of the heart and the level of the kidney to contain or maintain the proper amount of blood volume. Another factor that regulates the blood volume is the ADH, antidiuretic hormone. We saw this in the endocrine system. And it's controlled by the plasma osmolality, meaning the amount of solutes that we have in the blood. If we have an excessive amount of salt or sodium, let's say, that will stimulate the cells of the hypothalamus to make ADH, and the ADH will stimulate water reabsorption, will keep water, as the name says, antidiuretic, is against elimination of urine. And that's why people with high blood pressure are advising to lower the sodium in the diets, because it 
sodium is increased, that will stimulate ADH, and the ADH will retain water, and that will increase the blood volume. And increase the blood volume will increase the blood pressure. Aldosterone is another mechanism by which the blood volume is regulated. Aldosterone is produced by the adrenal cortex, and the stimulus is blood volume and blood pressure are reduced will stimulate aldosterone. This will make the kidneys reabsorb salt, sodium, and water. And this is the last of this sequence of activation, renin, angiotensin, aldosterone, which are hormones, factors that are made in the kidneys and uh, end up stimulating the adrenal cortex for making and releasing aldosterone. That sequence starts in this way. Blood pressure is low, many reasons. Kidney will detect that. This part called the extraglomerular apparatus in the kidneys will make and release this enzyme called renin. Now the renin will get and stimulate angiotensinogen, which is in the blood. And this will be converted to angiotensin 1. And the angiotensin 1 will get through the lungs and by the action of this enzyme, ACE, will be turned into angiotensin 2. The angiotensin 2 will have two effects. It will stimulate adrenal cortex to make aldosterone, or will make the arterioles constrict. And in that way, the final effect will be increased blood volume and increased blood pressure. And everything is started here with low blood pressure. It's a reaction, it's a, a way that the kidneys will react when we have low blood pressure. And it protects us against lack of blood supply in the important organs like the heart and the brain. The, that medication that was mentioned before, lisinopril, which is used against high blood pressure, that medication works here. It blocks that enzyme. Someone has high blood pressure, and I block this enzyme. I will change this mechanism so they will not, they will not have the reaction of increased blood pressure, and it's a way to control the blood pressure. And there's one more thing called AMP, or atrial natriuretic peptide. This AMP, or atrial natriuretic peptide, is made by the atrial heart. Stimulus is stretching. So whenever there is high volume, increased venous return, the atrial will be stretched, and it will release AMP. And what this does? Promotes solvent water excretion and inhibits ADH secretion, making the kidney eliminate more water. So it's a reaction. The atria detects that there's a lot of blood, a lot of volume, a lot of blood, and we'll send a signal through AMP to the kidneys to release 
fluid in order to balance this. In that sense, it's antagonist to aldosterone. The aldosterone has a complete opposite effect. Now let's go to see the resistance of the blood vessels and how that affects the flow to the different organs. We know what the cardiac output is, and the cardiac output is distributed to different organs in a different way. It depends on what type of organ it is, how much resistance to, to the blood flow is found in each of the organs, how much blood they need. And here we see blood flow getting to different organs in the relative percentages of it. 21, 24%, skeletal muscles, gastrointestinal tract, liver, followed by kidneys, they are the ones that have more percentage of the cardiac output. At rest. At rest. One of the reasons why when someone has a problem in the heart that decreases the cardiac output, one of the things that gets affected is skeletal muscles. People are so tired, they're not able to move. They're able to walk, they're able to walk long distances. Now the blood flow follows physics laws, yes? So that was for the high blood pressure? What? That's because it's not receiving not enough blood, not receiving enough blood, not enough cardiac output. And one of the reasons why they are not receiving enough cardiac output is because the heart is not sending enough, may be affected by the high blood pressure for a long time. Will exercise, exercise will increase the cardiac output. As long as your heart is healthy, it shouldn't be a problem. But if your heart is already affected by something, then this reaction will not be normal. And they will get tired easily because your heart is not sending enough blood as in a healthy person. So people with leukemia can potentially have that. Mm -hmm. People with leukemia can have that because they don't have enough, I guess, red blood cells. Yeah, but that's for a different mechanism. People with leukemia may have anemia because excessive number of white blood cells affect the red blood cells. and It's not because their blood and fluid is not circulating enough Oxygen is because the number of red blood cells I have that is decreased. But aren't white blood cells um, that clean up our whole system? Sorry? Aren't white blood cells what generally clean up our whole system? Yes. And so when people with leukemia, do they have excess of that? So yeah. What is, what does that mean? Like, is that an autoimmune thing? The problem, the problem with people with leukemia is they have an but those white blood cells are abnormal. Are what? Are abnormal. They are not functioning mm -hmm. regularly. I mean, the function of the white blood cells is to clean up, fight against the microorganisms. Yeah. And they have the machinery for that, enzymes, yeah. everything. But a leukemic cell, a cancer cell, a transformed white blood cell, would not be effective fighting against microorganisms. Mm -hmm. So there will be a lot of them, 
but they will not be working normally. And that's why people with leukemia have increased number of risk of infection because their immune system is not working. They have a lot of white blood cells, but those white blood cells are abnormal. They are not working fine. And besides, there's a lot of them. May obstruct some, or may make, make the blood more or thicker at expense of red blood cells, which will be decreased. And that means anemia. That's another symptom of people with leukemia, infection, anemia. Yeah. Now, the next part is to see physical loss about the blood flow, because this is taken from physics, is dynamic of fluids, pipes. But that's what the blood vessels are in some way. Not the same, because the pipes are rigid. Blood vessels are not rigid. They are elastic. They can contract. So, in a way, in some way, it is similar to the uh, dynamic of fluids. Uh, one of the first principles is that why the blood flows? It flows because fluids go and move from an area of high pressure to an area of low pressure. That's like in uh, osmosis. And the rate or speed at which the blood flows is proportional to the difference in the pressure. The higher difference in the pressure, the blood will flow faster. And in that sense, if we check the pressures in the circulatory system, in the cardiovascular system, in the right atrium, the pressure is zero. And in the left ventricle, the pressure is 100. So there's 100 of delta, of difference. And that's what it makes the blood to move from the, right, from the arterial side to the venal side, and therefore returns to the right atrium. That's one of the things. Blood flows from a higher pressure to an area of lower pressure. And so we say the rate, the rate of blood flow is also proportional to the difference in the pressure. And that's what we see here. Blood flow related to the difference in pressure. But it has an inverse relationship to the resistance. Meaning, high resistance, less blood flow. Lower resistance, more blood flow. So we can express that in a formula like this simple. Blood flow equals a delta of the pressure over the resistance. Some of them, yes. yes. I'm sorry, can you repeat? Uh, the higher resistance, the less blood flow? Yeah, yeah. Whichever is in the denominator here, is inversely related to the blood flow. And you translate it in words, if there is higher resistance here, there will be lower blood flow. And now if we get to the resistance and analyze the resistance only, the resistance in the pipe or in the blood vessel is related to two things. One of them is the length, the length of the vessel. The other thing, inversely related, is the radius of the blood vessel, how big it is, the diameter radius. And the viscosity, which is how thick the blood is. It's not the same. It's not the same of um, 
trying to move water, just water, through a pipe than try to move soup through the same pipe. It's not the same. That's what it means by viscosity of the, of the blood. It's not the same, the blood of a normal person, healthy, than the blood with someone with leukemia. You have an excessive number of white blood cells. So that is one of these type of things come in play. First, the length of the blood vessel is directly proportional to the resistance. Meaning that if your pipe is longer, then there will be more resistance. It's not the same try to move water through a hose that is three feet long than to move the water along a hose that has 20 feet long. Completely different. Have you ever tried blowing into the hose, trying to move the water in the garden hose that you have at home, which is usually 20 feet, 30 feet? But it's very hard. It's not the same as you, you have a short segment. So it depends on the length of the vessel. And inversely related to the radius, meaning that if your blood vessel or pipe is huge, a big one like this, what is easy? It's less resistance. But if it's like the diameter of a straw, it's much harder to blow or pass water through it. So all those things are considered or the blood vessels, it works in the same way. One of the things in, uh, with the length of the blood vessel that we use to explain why some people with uh, overweight and obesity, they, some of them have high blood pressure. Over the time, the blood pressure increases. So why? Well, when someone gains weight and gets obese, means that there's a lot of adipose tissue. More tissue in our body will need more nutrients. How these nutrients get to the cells? Through blood vessels. So people with obesity, they have more blood vessels than a regular person. And if we just make this, imagine if you grab every single blood vessel of your body and put it one, one segment after another, a long, long, unique blood vessel. You will notice, it makes sense, someone with obesity will have a much longer blood vessel than a normal weight, regular weight person. So we are increasing the length of the vessel. We are increasing the resistance. Therefore, the heart has to pump harder. Therefore, the high blood pressure will be higher. We're going the other way around. If that person loses weight, over a long period of time, usually, we may see sometimes that the high blood pressure will go back to normal levels because of reducing that length of the blood vessel. So all these things are also helpful to explain many things, and all is based in physics. Now, to make the thing more complicated, this is a combination of the two previous formulas. This is from physics, dynamics of fluids. But I'll tell you the summary and what are the things you should remember from this. This is a formula, and all these things that you see here have been explained before. Look at this, blood flow equals the delta the pressure, resistance, and uh, length of the blood vessel, and the viscosity of the blood vessel. Dr. Angelis, mm. that's why we came into the science.
What? We're getting away from physics. You're getting away from physics? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to remember formulas. Why does that have Yeah, those are factors to correct the formula, or adjust the formula, because this is the original, we call Poisson's law from dynamic of fluids. Um, and those are factors to correct, the, and the same as the factor that you see on top of the, of the formula. But just to mention that the factors, the important factors to remember here that determine the blood flow, as we've been explaining, are the length of the blood vessel, the radius of the blood vessel, the difference of pressure between two segments of the circulation. And some of the things that you should remember are explained in these graphs, like this example, for instance, if you have this situation A, you see the picture of this artery branching off in two branches here of the same size, the same diameter. And this given numbers here, the radius of this one is one, the radius of this one is one, the resistance here is R, the blood flow is F, as well as here. But if we change the situation to here and I increase the radius of this blood vessel, from one to two, I will see that the blood flow will change 16 times. And the resistance will decrease 1 16th. And if I see this other branch that has been decreased in diameter to half the value from one to 0.5 millimeters, now the resistance will be increased 16 times and the flow will be reduced 1 16th of the original value. These are the things that are helpful to remember because with an example, let's say that I have someone with high blood pressure here and I give medications to lower the blood pressure. I'm gonna give a vasodilator so I will create a situation. The resistance, which is the one that determines the high blood pressure, will be reduced to 1 16th of the volume. Because I'm reducing the radius and just I'm increasing the radius twice, but the resistance will change 16 times. So that's how these medications against the blood blood pressure, high blood pressure, are really effective. You give this medication, dilates the blood vessel a little bit, but that will have a great impact in decreasing the resistance and decreasing the the high blood pressure in those cases. That's called vasodilators. They dilate the blood vessels. Vasodilators. Yeah. And in the common market, what medication that would be? That would be the propranolol, atenolol, pendolol, all those lol. Yeah. Wow. And that, that, is, that was described here in one of the first formulas. Resistance and the fourth potency of the radius. So if you plug in here 2, it will be 2 to the 4th will be 16. So it will change 16 times. If I increase double the resistance, I will uh, decrease, it's because I decrease the radius in 16 times. It's, that's the consequences of these formulas.
that would be the example of, of uh, one six of persistence. Yeah, one six and sixteen. Now we figure this in the whole body. We'll have this this picture here. The heart pumping blood, arteriosite, and being distributed to every single organ that has many capillary blood vessels, and they connect to the venosite in this way. Each organ will receive the amount of blood that is determined by the resistance, the diameter, the amount of blood vessels and how much oxygen each organ uh, needs. And everything is controlled by vasodilation, mostly arterial side will just dilate or contract the smooth muscle in the blood vessel wall, changing all these factors that we just studied. Blood pressure. Blood pressure. We've been talking about blood pressure, and uh, now we can approach all this from the blood pressure side. And we can say that the blood pressure is determined by the cardiac output, more blood that will increase the pressure, and the total peripheral resistance, which is the resistance that the blood vessels offers proposes to the flow of blood. Or I can say if I increase the cardiac output, I will increase the blood pressure. Or if I increase the peripheral resistance, I will increase the blood pressure. This is what happens in most people that have high blood pressure. There's an increased total peripheral resistance. Why? The blood vessels have vasoconstriction. Some of the arteries, they have plaques of atherosclerosis that increases the resistance, and all that determines to increase the arterial blood pressure. And we can complete this, like vasoconstriction affecting the total peripheral resistance. We know that the cardiac output is determined by cardiac rate and stroke volume.
And that's because if we add, imagine all these small capillary blood vessels, if we add the diameters of every single capillary blood vessel, we will end up with a big blood vessel on this side. And I'm increasing the radius and decreasing the pressure and decreasing the resistance. The blood pressure is regulated by the same mechanisms that we mentioned. Kidneys control blood volume, stroke volume, and sympathetic nervous system will determine vasoconstriction of arterioles, increased resistance, and will also increase the cardiac output. All these factors will affect the blood pressure. And the blood pressure is something that is regulated besides by other mechanisms. There are some detectors or sensors that we have in the blood vessels that will control, monitor, and balance this all the time, like the baroreceptor reflex. There are baroreceptors, which are stretch receptors, in two places, in the aortic arch and the carotid artery. If the blood, blood pressure gets higher, these receptors will detect that by stretching. And it will send the signals to centers in the medulla oblongata. And the response will come down as vasodilation, vasoconstriction, depending on the, on the stimulus. Blood vessels and heart rate control. Is that what happens when we and experiments that we had in the blood pressure or lab, when you stand up all of a sudden or lay down, and then your body receptors detecting all that changes in the pressure because of the gravity, and send signals to the medulla oblongata, come back as a stimulation to your heart and stimulation to the blood vessels to contract. Heart will increase the heart rate if the blood pressure goes low, and the blood vessels will constrict, will constrict in response to a lower in the blood pressure. Questions, comments to this point? <laughs> 